In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. This morning, there are a couple of adult things that we need to talk about that may be hard for our kids to hear and to understand. So before we begin, I want to flag that for those of you who are parents with younger kids in the room. Normally at this point, they would be in church school. And for the last few weeks of Easter, because our sermon time together has been sort of joyful and comforting, and because I've been very aware that we have small ears in front of the screen, we haven't looked at anything particularly difficult. But the text today offer us a meaningful intersection with the news of the week. And even in the midst of this pandemic, we who would seek to be disciples of Jesus, who would seek to follow him, we need to look at hard things. So this would be a good moment, if you want to, to excuse your kids so that you can decide later how to talk to them about some of these things. On the fifth Sunday of Easter, Jesus tells us not to let our hearts be troubled. And yet, even in this Easter season, our hearts are troubled, aren't they? Weighted and weighed down by many things. Our world is troubled too. All you have to do is look at the news to see that. And even our text this morning in this season of Easter, which is joyful and hopeful, our texts this morning are filled with troubling images. I often wondered how the compilers of our lectionary could put all of these things together, beginning with Stephen, and then we have this rich passage from 1 Peter, and then Jesus telling us not to be troubled. On some level, they don't really seem to go together. And I'll admit that I sort of dread this text from Acts and having to preach on the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr of the church, the first Christian to die for his faith. And you might wonder what he did to merit that treatment. And it's a pretty simple answer. He took Jesus seriously. He was preaching and teaching. He was calling others to account to be aware of their actions, and in particular, to take responsibility for killing Jesus. And he was working wonders among the people, the way that John suggests is possible in the second half of the gospel this morning. And his faith is something that defines him, something for which he dies. And in the story, we only hear a part of Stephen. In, in fullness, Stephen's story is very much like Jesus. He doesn't die on a cross, but his death parallels the story of Jesus very, very closely. He preaches and teaches. He's arrested for that. He's brought to trial in front of the Sanhedrin. He's taken outside the city to be executed. He looks up to heaven for help and for comfort. He prays for forgiveness for those who are killing him, and he gives up his spirit to God. And that progression of events should sound very familiar. And then there's the close. Before Jesus is killed, the text tells us that they cast lots for his clothing. And the reference to clothing here is a little different, but the symbolism behind it is very similar. In the text, we hear that they have laid coats at the feet of the powerful one among them, the one who may well have engineered this entire sickening episode. And that one is Saul. Saul, who would very shortly after this be accosted by God on the road to Damascus, and who would be renamed Paul. Saul, who would become the great apostle, the champion of Christ. 
Saul who first tortured Christians and persecuted the faithful and had them stoned on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Stephen is stoned for his faith because his faith defines him. He is killed for being who he is. The world, the culture around him has decided that he is dangerous, that his story and the story of Jesus is a threat to the greater good, to the comfort and safety of society, to the rolling on of the status quo. So there wasn't enough room for Stephen, for his story, for his way of being in the world, for his hope and for his conviction. And those with power and privilege who are embodied in the story and the person of Saul, out of a desire to maintain the status quo and to maintain control, Saul has him killed, rather publicly and with no fear of reprisal. And honestly, it's a short passage, but it should be a sickening and a tragic story for us. And I've never understood why we heard this story in the midst of Easter until I started writing this sermon. Because there is Easter news in this text. And with God, there is always good news, even when it doesn't look like it. And there are two specific sources of hope and of good news in here. The first one, and most obviously and always, is Jesus. Stephen looks up and sees a vision of Jesus, and so the hope for Stephen is that he is resurrected, safe for eternity because of what Jesus does on the cross and because of Stephen's relationship with him. But the second hope is not so obvious, and it's hope for now. Hope not just for the next life, but hope for this life. Hope that very ironically, rests on Saul. Because God isn't done with Saul yet. God has a plan for Saul to become Paul, for the violent to become peaceful, for the righteous one to be humbled, for the one filled with rage and hatred to be filled instead with love. Now maybe you remember the story of God interceding, striking Saul blind on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him and asks him, why are you persecuting me? And Saul realizes that he has been blind, blind to the truth, blind to human suffering, blind to God's will for justice and peace, which is made visible to us in the life of Jesus Christ. And through this experience, Saul becomes Paul. And Paul changes the world by spreading God's love far and wide and as often as he possibly can. He writes letters and he plants churches and he encourages others in their faith. He atones for the wrong that he was a part of and his work and his faith undoubtedly shapes the church and in doing so shapes a huge part of the rest of the world. In fact, it's Paul this morning who writes that we were once not a people there was a time when we had not yet received mercy, but now because God has acted, we are a people who know mercy. We are a people who are bound up into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. It is Paul who says in his letter to the Galatians that there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but that in Christ we are all a new creation, all equal, all part of the same body. And it is Paul who lays out the riches of Christ's grace most eloquently, who writes so clearly about God's love and about what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. It is Paul who convinces us that with Jesus, there is a tension between the now and the not yet, 
that we who know Christ don't have to wait for heaven, for some distant day of peace, that instead we have the opportunity and the obligation to live now in the resurrection, to live now the things we say we believe, and to be like Paul who converted and redeemed, shares the love of God every day of his life in what he says and in what he does. Now we know from the text that Paul is not perfect by any stretch, but it is clear from his writing and from his life that what he wants with all of his being is to follow Jesus. And so he sets about trying to build God's kingdom now as much as possible to call God's people to be the living stones of a temple, of a house, of a home built together by every act of loving kindness into a sanctuary, a place where God and God's people can dwell in peace. But the thing is, this doesn't just happen to Paul. It is true that it's God who intercedes, but then after that, after Paul's conversion, after God's action, there was work that Paul still had to do himself. The early church and the apostles were skeptical at best. And can you blame them? How could they trust someone who was such an integral part of the system of power and privilege that tortured and killed and persecuted them? They didn't just throw their arms open to this new apostle and welcome Paul in and wipe the slate clean and pretend that nothing happened. They couldn't. They had lost too much. Stephen was not the only one. And so Paul had to learn. He had to work. He had to love. He had to find a way to be humble and consistent and faithful. This week, we watched in the news a story very much like the first passage we hear today from the book of Acts. In a neighborhood in Georgia, a young black man was killed, tragically, sickeningly. And we had to wait a long time to even hear about it because society and those with privilege deemed him dangerous because of the color of his skin. Like Jesus, like Stephen, and like so many others, this young man died at the hands of those who decided he was a criminal, not because he'd done anything wrong, but because they had the power to say so, and because they thought they perceived a threat. And my friends, this is no different than the story we hear this morning of Stephen and of Saul. Saul had the power and yet was unable to see. And 2,000 years later, we still have not done enough to make room for everyone to take seriously Paul's claim after he's converted that there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but one new creation, one people in Christ. My friends, we who walk around in the world with the privilege, meaning if you look like me, we need to learn to be more like Paul. We need to be converted. And honestly, God has already interceded. God has already done God's part in scripture, in Jesus, in the history of this country, in the civil rights movement, in small bridges being built, in meaningful relationships, in the ways that we've learned, and in acts of love. But now the rest of the work is not up to God. It's up to us. We who have the privilege. We have to do the work now to listen and to pray and then to act faithfully and consistently to change ourselves and the world around us. The second hope of this Easter story is in Paul's new life, 
The whole world is changed because Paul is changed. His heart, his mind. And so the second hope of this Easter passage that rests on Saul becoming Paul, well, that rests then on us too, on me and on you. The first half of this gospel that we hear today is a passage that we often hear at funerals. Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places, or in some translations, many rooms. It's the most concrete image of heaven, really, that we have, a home, a big, roomy home in God, where there is room enough for everyone. And on the days that we stand at the grave, we need to hear those comforting words of Jesus, saying that there is a place where there is room for you and room for your loved one that has already been prepared and that Jesus will come and take you there himself. And I admit that I love preaching this text on those days when people need to hear that news, because I believe that it's true, and because I believe that it's the only way to freedom, to know that God loves you and has prepared a place that is just for you. But this morning, I have to admit that I don't want to find this text comforting not until we stand at the grave of racism and of privilege, not until we stand at the grave of oppression, not until we have eradicated cruelty and torture and murder and lynching. I want this text to be a call, a call to action, a call to remember the uncomfortable, the uncomfortable work that we still need to do. Because my friends, there are too many Stevens in the world. They just go by other names. And until there are no more, we have to learn to be like Paul, who is converted by God's love and changed forever and changed so dramatically that he cannot help but change the world around him. And if that feels a little overwhelming, this is where Thomas is really helpful. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Lord, this evil is too big. How can we beat it? Lord, this world is too broken and these problems too messy. How can we even begin to address them? How can I, in my life, in the midst of this pandemic, in Fairfield County or wherever else you are, how can I begin to know what to do, to know the way? And Jesus is super clear in the gospel this morning. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I am the way and the truth and the life. It's a simple answer. Believe and follow. And with your faith, you will do greater things than you can imagine in the name of Jesus. When Paul's eyesight is restored, when he knows that Jesus is real and that he has wounded the kingdom, he grieves for that. And he wrestles with this for the rest of his life. But what he does next is really important. He gets up off his knees and he goes to follow Jesus, to learn as best he can to live and to love other people the way that Jesus does. Now free and made a new creation in Christ, he tries to figure out how to set others free. He teaches them to pray. He teaches them to love. He teaches them to make room at the table for everyone to share what they have, to forgive their neighbors, to show and receive mercy, and to not let themselves off the hook. He spends the rest of his life building communities where the rich and the poor, the sick and the lonely, the powerful and the vulnerable come together around one table and around one truth 
that is Jesus. My friends, the good news of Easter this morning is twofold. First and always is Jesus who defeats death eternally and who invites us into resurrection and into hope. And then there is something else. In the midst of despair, there is hope, not just for the next life, but for this one. If we will let ourselves be changed and converted by God's action, if we will then go further and do the work to respect the dignity of every human being and to build a society in which that is the expectation. As individuals and as a people who have been anointed by God and tasked with changing the world. You may not feel like Paul this morning. You may not know how to plant churches and write letters that will shape the course of the church and change the world. But you know how to love and you know when love has been trampled. Do not be afraid to say so. Do not be afraid to see it. Do not be afraid to respond to it. May we be the people, the priesthood, the nation that stands at the grave of racism. May we stand at the grave of oppression, at the grave of senseless violence. May we be the ones with God's help who proclaim finally and for all people that in God's house there are many rooms and there is room enough for everyone. Amen.